Hey, this is John Anderson, and this is my uh, day two GDC wrap up. Um, today, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do this by myself. This would be the uh, I don't know the hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of podcasting I've done. Uh, this would be my first time just talking to a micro- microphone by myself. It's uh, I don't know. It feels a lot like like drinking, right? Like it's not something. Uh, for me, at least, not something I do. I do by myself much. He says as he sips a light beer. Um, so today, uh, the second day of GDC, uh, a lot more panels, obviously. So I'll, I'll do my my rundown of those. I think um, you know the big highlight for me was I was walking down the street and I met uh, WWE superstar Xavier Woods, uh, and and that was really really cool. Uh, so you know. Kids, follow your dreams. Someday you'll grow up and go to the video game industry um, convention and uh, meet a, a wrestler. So uh, I don't know. That's just kind of I couldn't have p- really planned my life any better than that. So um, go through the panels I went to today. I think, again, like just kind of reiterate what I was saying yesterday. Um, not really haven't really identified a major theme like you know i went to these vr panels that like if they happened last year would have been they would have been turning away people at the door and you know there was plenty of space um so the first thing i went to uh was a panel called a year in vr uh, a look back at vr's launch and in hindsight i kind of regret going to this because there there were some other uh, vr panels at the same time that that looked well in hindsight they were probably more interesting um, this panel was put on by the the uh, developers of Job Simulator. Um, let's see, I think it's called Island Three Five Nine, and then Fantastic Contraption. And while like I do appreciate that these guys were were definitely trying to bring, and these are you know three fairly successful VR uh, games, but you know I I and I appreciate that they're trying to um, you know have a fairly positive thing to their panel it ended up being more advice driven than i was kind of really expecting them to look at the year in vr and like offer more of a retrospective so they they went through the timeline of this uh, of i should say last year of the launch uh large investments from from htc especially overseas um the kind of they mentioned the rise of vr arcades vr arcades vr arcades uh, that's a yeah, that's no good. Uh, I I personally haven't seen a lot of those, but that's, you know, hey, maybe we don't have them in Seattle. Um, they talked about the how how the the hype was still you know really real at E3 and Bethesda announced you know uh, Doom and Fallout for um, Vive and I we haven't heard uh, anything since and all the like very high profile PSVR stuff. Um, there. Uh, you know, the lo-fi uh, VR of, of Gear VR, V3, Google Daydream. Uh, they did talk about the interesting sort of, um, the two different approaches to, you know, our more, uh, what do they call it, the Omega, the more, hey, I'm just wearing this set of glasses or whatever, uh, that like cheaper things getting higher and higher fidelity and uh, more expensive things getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, so it's that that was one of the interesting takeaways from here. And then, um, you know, uh, going over the you know, PSVR launch, the touch controllers, uh, Unity's in VR uh, editor, and, th- and that is sort of like that was the last couple months of, of 2016. So um, while they went through sort of their 
individual stories on the launches what i really would have expected in a uh a year in vr a look back at vr's launch would be a more uh a look back at the actual year and, and what it what it meant i mean we we're talking about i mean a, a hugely botched launch on oculus's part like right like reddit was crazy uh during that time people doing crazy stuff tracking down like looking at their serial numbers trying to figure out when their stuff would ship uh or the order numbers uh what have you um you know vive went significantly smoother psvr was was hugely successful the lawsuit i mean like the the lawsuit was huge it has the potential the the bethesda um sorry the zenimax um Oculus lawsuit has a tended like has a potential to really, I mean, do some inter- interesting things in the industry, right? And uh, and then you have like Palmer Lucky, um, and his, you know, trolling, I guess you you would say. So um, I I would have expected more stuff like that, like talking about some of the I don't want to say challenges, but like just just looking at this thing and and uh and not just calling out the the highlights because it, it serves your your narrative. Um, but they did talk about some of the successes. So Job Simulator has uh, earned over $3 million in sales, uh, and they've never had a significant discount yet. They say, hey, we, our game is worth $40, so you pay us $40 for it. Um, and this is, and then things really started turning into this, like, advice-driven uh, thing about, hey, you know, marketing is, marketing is different with VR. Um and they talked about some interesting things around Twitch integrating spectator modes, um, having to build uh, mixed reality tech so you can kind of so you can you know put a, a person in your game environment uh, and show a video of like that. I think one one interesting takeaway from this and a couple other talks today is is there's certainly a focus around uh, there's certainly some excitement around mixed reality, but more so in. Uh, in ways of showing off games and really met, heard it talked about in a lot of marketing uh, context. Um, there, there still is definitely this idea amongst VR developers that everybody is a VR evangelist, right? That um, I don't want to quite say frenemies, right? But, but there, there are competitive collaborators. Um, I think the success of, and I, th- what they're saying is that the success of, of VR, like an, if an individual game is is very successful, it's it's good for uh, for the rest of the developers uh, because it's potential to um, you know uh, cross exposure. Uh, that didn't make a ton of sense, but I'm going to move on. Um, the folks from and I I, th- I think it was Island Three Five Nine. I'm I'm actually not familiar with the game. Uh, is that is to to bring attention to the, like while the PSVR launch and, P- and PSVR for that matter has has uh, high profile somewhat safe titles like Batman and and uh, Resident Evil that indie VR is is where the innovation is and I think in a lot of ways you know that's true in non VR gaming in a, in a lot of ways I mean you have you do have innovation from from AAA, right? If you look at, um, if you go back and look at, uh, like the Nemesis system from uh, from Shadow of Mordor. I mean, that's hugely expen- expensive game, and and that system it was was super interesting and innovative. And uh, so there's there's you know some of that, but like you tend to see more interesting, smaller. I don't want to say smaller ideas, but things 
more focused ideas in in indie um and they mentioned budget cuts fantastic contraption and super hot vr i mean super hot uh the 2d version not the 2d version but the traditional display version i mean that's also super innovative uh i if you're into man if you if you're kind of into like being in the matrix i cannot recommend superhero uh, super hot vr enough i uh i love a uh, man super hot so good super hot um they talked about some uh, mixed reality tech that included like transparencies, transparency and dynamic lighting. Uh, this was super cool um, to see, you know, uh, waving around a wand in mixed reality. And, and it actually like the light projecting onto the the uh, re the real life meat space person. Um, and they talked about, you know, some interesting thing around or tracking the whole body. And that that was I, I've been to three talks so far that talked about like full body tracking and like it seems like there are different approaches I mean these guys literally strapped extra Vive controllers to their legs uh, and that's how they rendered uh, rendered the legs and could kind of interpolate the, the rest of the body um, so they're talking about how I mean 20 years ago when um, dual analog sticks rolled out uh, there was not necessarily like a single way of doing things like if you look at um if you look at the place you know playstation one like if you played gran turismo a driving game with uh with dual analog sticks right like the the right analog stick was brake and accelerate if you the uh I, if i remember correctly that's super weird like when you have shoulder buttons oh or, and you know nobody really like shooter controls didn't get super good uh until i want to say halo but i mean hey i'm not I'm not a gaming historian here. So like it's what I'm trying to get to is the the uh standardization of control mechanisms is going to be like important and we're only really a year into consumer high quality uh VR. So of course they're not really uh not really there yet. Uh there are some really good questions from the crowd especially when it comes to dis disabilities and accessibilities. Uh you know the um the guys did not cop out from saying hey we're a small team and we we could do better and we want to do better um but they have done certain aspects to adapt their games i forget which game it was i want to say job simulator added a, a short uh what do you say a lower human mode and uh i think there's only one object you interact with in the game that requires two hands um but, you know it's kind of be it's going to be really interesting to see how those kind of problems are tackled because i mean room scale vr it seems like a lot of these experiences are just are mostly made for uh fully able-bodied uh is that the right term i yeah uh folks and it's um and when you have something that's that's as immersive as vr it certainly seems like there's a uh there this is a good place uh for people to push what's possible in that in the the accessibility uh, uh area so I yammered on through that one, huh? Um, so the next panel I went to uh, was, uh, it's called We Failed at Publishing. Um, hey, so this is this is more in MySpace, right? Like we're talking about, not MySpace.com, the site with Tom or whatever, but in more in, in my headspace is the uh, publishing and, and business side of, of games and stuff. So uh, this it was called We, F we Failed at Publishing Competitive Games, so you don't have to. Uh, it was Dave Lang from Iron Galaxy. Um, Iron Galaxy is a studio slash publisher i mean they have they do contract work on triple a games they do a lot of ports they do stuff like that they 
they do Killer Instinct for for Microsoft. Um, they uh, did Dive Kick, and that was where the talk really started. The the success and failings of of Dive Kick, this uh, simple um, fighting game. And you know, the, the, it's frankly the game didn't it was while it was seemed successful, it didn't make enough money. They went to the wrong conventions. They should have uh, spent their money better. Um, and they talk, he talks, this, this, you know, gave me a little chuckle, but he talked about the weird quirks in publishing of publishing with Sony and Microsoft and the black box, uh, nature of publishing with valve of just, well, you, you, you know, maybe, maybe somebody will get back to you at some point. Um, but the, the things they did do well with Divekick is they built an audience, discovered their voice as a, as a publisher or as a, a as a developer and, uh, and got great experience. So from there, they, they developed a business model of uh, trying to do this micro-publishing sort of thing and uh, finding games that they can hopefully recoup the money on uh, day one, build a portfolio of, of similar titles. So uh, they went out and got these three games that are not terribly dissimilar. It's Capsule Force, Gunsport, and Video Ball. Uh, and that if they would, they figured that if they they kind of had a voice, had a, like a genre that they were more or less specialized in, uh, they could you know, leverage that audience to build interest across their games uh, with the end goal of obviously cashing large checks. I just have written in caps here, cash large checks. So they implement that model for those three games and it failed uh, miserably. I think one of the really interesting things that Dave uh, Dave Lang sort of uh, mentioned was, um, and I'm having to look this thing up on my phone here, is um, that... Uh, so sorry, uh, Method's first law of game dev: the worst thing you can happen, uh, the worst thing that can happen to a young developer is to work on a successful game, because you end up thinking you had something to do with it. Uh, so they didn't basically like the games. You know, the, the Dive Kick was incredible because of because Dive Kick was incredible, right? Like Dive Kick wasn't necessarily incredible because of the marketing push behind it by by them. So. Um, they kind of uh, maybe made some faulty assumptions about uh, um, what, why Dive Kick was was successful in the first place. That um, they thought that the Dive Kick and and Iron Galaxy fans would immediately jump to these other games, and um, you know that the budgets would remain small, and they could reach this like casual indie audience in the same way they had reached a fighting game audience with, uh, with, uh, dive kick and uh, yep, it did not work. Um, so they've kind of since, uh, read, I mean, the, the cool thing was the cool thing about hearing a developer actually talk about, um, messing up and messing up big, um, is really cool. It's just, uh, to, to hear somebody talk about it with such, uh, modesty or, humbleness i don't know i don't have my thesaurus handy um and but he, he said like hey they're gonna adjust fire again and um he mentioned that like hey and i hate this i hate this phrase right i i think every if you're a designer at microsoft and you hate don't hate the the phrase uh minimum viable product then ah i i got no time for you but uh he, he says ship mvp and and then support and i think that last part is key right like you could ship a fighting game with with eight characters and then roll the rest out of DLC, and if you um, um, if hey if it's not successful with the eight characters, you don't have to do the DLC. You can sh- adjust and and save that money. Um, 
they learn that hype can't be created. Uh, and if you're having trouble generating hype, ask yourself why. Perhaps the game's not there yet. Uh, and, you know, to not make, um, they'll make assumptions about partners, right? Like, I think, not to go too far down a tangent, but like, one thing my lawyer or wife, my wife lawyer, one thing my wife always, uh, she tells me like the, the only really good thing she learned in law school was um, to either don't make or uh, don't make assumptions or state your assumptions. Um, and I think uh, that's a really good way to, to live your life because you you kind of avoid some needlessly needless confusion, right? Um, so then, and you know, their Iron Galaxy is still hugely successful, right? Like they take on these, these huge contracts and these port work and they, Killer Instinct, I, to my understanding, is, is super successful with it for them. And, uh, you know, it shared this information with, with us, which is really cool. So I think this is like, this is really my bread and butter, this kind of aspect of the games industry. This is like the stuff that really interests me. And that's, um, kind of what the niche I've, uh, carved out for myself on the Dev Center team. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was really good stuff. Um, I went to a panel called, uh, to together comma apart self-expression and communication in social VR. So this was a lot about, um, uh, this was, and I'm forgetting the presenter's name. She's a, a developer at, at, at Sony working on PSVR and, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, they were talking about some interesting ways of, of, and this again this was kind of this stuff that from will smith's presentation on the foo show as well about the foo show about uh communicating body language inferring uh how to infer movement um things about simple hand gestures um adding layering in from there like uh multiplayer actions like high fives fist bumps eye pokes uh, i have head punch uh and then uh, same thing there that Will, Will Smith was talking about was like procedural procedural eye look. So, uh, you know, you could, they're, they're, these things don't have eye tracking in them, but one thing that is, is certain to send you uh, with a one-way ticket to the Uncanny Valley is a lack of like eye movement or blinking. Like nothing makes uh, things feel deader than, than the eyes not moving. So... Um, but you could also screw that up, right? You could make the player character look way more nervous than they actually are if you're if you're having those eyes go crazy. Um, and you have to like figure out a good way to implement blinking because you're not actually gonna. It's not gonna be real blinking, right? Uh, it's not gonna mirror what you're actually doing in your HMD. It's uh, totally faked. But you can't just be random. It can't be at a, a set time because that's just not how human beings work so they worked out blinking algorithm um and he and uh, she mentioned hey what what if there was just they she had a a, a a slide with like you know just 25 faces that expressed emotion on the screen it's like oh what if you have what what's a way to communicate you know in emotion across many different languages and it's like oh yeah duh emojis um and and the kind of the kind of strength of emojis is that they they communicate intent right um more so than than our words our words do especially in english right like we, we're pretty we're pretty sarcastic uh the way we use it right so um uh and she also talked about because uh, she's you're talking about designing these social social experiences with and and also mentioned um the same stuff about like non-realistic uh characters that that can still look like a lie that can clearly communicate 
like body language and and uh and some emotion right um uh, and then and she f- she finished with uh, a bit about player safety um uh, so they figured out that des- you can design for positive interactions so a friendlier avatar environment and objective uh turns out friendlier players i don't know if you guys have you guys i don't know uh you know <laughs> i mentioned it last night it took me 20 minutes to try to remember the, the game but like you know rec room it's a very light sort of thing and every time i've been in there like you, i just go on these like mini adventures with with people and for the most part they um uh, they go really they go they go pretty well but if you're having like a yeah like you could see why if you had a shooty murder game uh with hyper really realistic graphics and, and killing that that might uh have a more uh aggressive meta layer too um you can drive accountability through communities and kudos so i guess both positive and negative reinforcement uh there has to be a foolproof foolproof escape and a way to preserve uh personal space um or at least uh if there isn't uh that should be clearly communicated up front so that was pretty cool uh i went to two i actually went to three more things i'll just go over the the last i'll just go over two of them uh i went to overcoming community negativity it was a this guy from a mobile a Canadian mobile developer um, who has a very toxic community around his games uh, talked about how, you know, honestly, I didn't really, it didn't really paint a clear narrative of, of um, how to, it, it seemed to be more about how to just deal with it and like uh, grit your teeth and bear it uh, rather than it didn't seem like he had a solution to to actually to actually uh, cure toxic communities. It was more of how to stay sane yourself if you have to deal with one. Um, so I'm not gonna. I won't go too much into that. And then uh, the last one that I think was really interesting uh, was uh, "Punch It Up," a uh, writing for Star Trek and VR. And so this was on the narrative path, uh, and it was by uh, Jay Posey from Redstorm Interactive, which is in uh, part of ubiquitous software, Ubisoft. Um, he talked about the, the, the upcoming, uh, Star Trek bridge crew and it, it was super interesting. Uh, he talked about like their current, their core pillars of presence, making people feel like they are there on that spaceship, the, the franchise. Um, so, you know, Star Trek, the brand and, and all that is, and then cooperation between the, the player characters. So the four, uh, bridge, uh, positions. So, uh, one thing he mentioned that I thought was really interesting is their main menu is, uh, you, the player character, being in a shuttle, just doing a fly around of uh, the starship. Uh, so looking at it from the outside, and they found. <coughs> sorry. So they found that. Um, so this is the main menu. This is the press start to get going thing, and th- their playtesters um, would sit in that for three, five, seven, ten minutes, and like some of them would would weep. Uh, they would just start like crying because they're overwhelmed by the emotion, and I think this is. This is like a really interesting phenomenon in VR for me. Uh, you know, like I had a very emotional reaction to um, uh, Google Earth VR. And I've heard the same from a lot of people. And it's not like, you know, it's not like you're, this is not like it's some narr- necessarily a narrative experience, like a gone home that's like, oh man, or, or life is strange where it's like, oh yeah, I'm crying because of this this story that, that, that kind of toyed with my emotions in that way. It's just like, this is this overwhelming um thing and i i really do that is what i love the most about vr actually it's what i love the second most so the the thing i love the most is really doing really trippy out of body stuff like thumper and 
uh, tilt brush, uh, those kind of things. But um, uh, he was talking about some interesting narrative tricks they sort of have to do uh, to make it flow that that you you don't necessarily have to account for in either in, in maybe single player experiences uh, versus co-op ones. So they, you know, the guy on the view screen sort of way of doing exposition, a big trope in Star Trek, uh, does not really work to a shared group of users and isn't super interesting to look at in first person. But they found that players would respond a lot better to uh, a captain's log uh, to kick off the, the play session. Um, I have a note down here that's just say it's in parentheses. It said these graphics kind of look like butt. Yeah, this graphics in this game don't look terrible. Like the player, like the the humans in this, uh, it, they don't look that great. Um, and I say that as like a huge Star Trek fan. Um, like pretty, pretty yeah, a fairly. Low, <laughs> I, I I watch a lot of Star Trek. I'll put it that way. Uh, but uh, you know, regardless of that, it still seems like I. I mean, I, I'm gonna almost certainly purchased this on, on day one. It really cool looking. Um, but the reason they here, here, go back to my, my point, the, the reason that he's not sure why users respond better, uh, but he does think it might have something to do with just being the familiar framing device of the, of the captain's log. Um, and you know, I, I it's, it's totally true, right? Like almost every Star Trek kicks off with a, hey, here is some exposition to get our story started. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, there, there's sort of an asynchronous element to Star Trek Bridge Crew, and because uh, different player characters have different information, and I think that's really, uh, I think that's re really neat. Because that's like when you're actually a part of a, a crew like this, a team, um, a military unit, like you're different people are doing different roles and they have specialized training. Well, you know, I'm not going to go off to Starfleet Academy. Uh, to to actually like learn to be a starship commander because uh, spoiler warning, Star Trek's not real. Um, but uh, you can give the player characters uh m more specialized information and uh and handle that that way. So um, you know, I just have a note down here: a space team, like high fidelity space team. That was like a mobile game where well, it was actually a and a computer game where you were doing basically this sort of thing, not in VR. Uh, I, I, for one, cannot wait to play this. I think this will be a really interesting uh, thing. I also went to um, one more VR talk. Really, It was really late in the day. I took paper notes, uh, but I don't know where I put them. So um, uh, maybe I'll cover that on tomorrow's show. So just to, to sum it all up, um, and I say sum it all up, uh, the, yeah, the 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 biggest thing today by far was meeting WWE superstar uh, Xavier Woods. Uh, I'm a, I watch wrestling. This is something you, you might not know about your boy John Anderson, but but I like the wrestling. It's pretty fun, and he's pretty fantastic. Uh, really nice guy. Posed, posed for a, a picture with me, and I, I w couldn't have been more happy about that. Um, but uh, so this is going – I think I'll probably send this out either uh, late Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning. Um, if you listen to this around when it comes out, pay attention to what Microsoft is talking about on, uh, on Wednesday, March 1st at GDC. Um, there's, there's going to be a lot of great stuff. I couldn't be more proud, uh, to have, to have worked on some of the things we're, we're talking about. Um, so yeah, that, I, I mean, that said, I might, I should probably put this up Wednesday, right? I'm, I'm not being too crazy about, I didn't, yeah. 
I'm 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 keeping it playing close to the chest still, uh, close to the vest. Now I'm just rambling. I don't even know sayings. So uh, yeah, that is that is my day two at GDC. Uh, probably gonna ha- take it a little easy tonight. I just uh, just walked and got a, an amazing burrito. But uh, hey, sorry. Now I'm really really tangentializing here. But here's an interesting thing about San Francisco. They call themselves the city. Like, does New York know about this? Um, because like, I, like while I, I San Francisco is definitely a a world class city. It is not the city. Uh, did I just like go into a little bit of a Seinfeld bit right there? That's kind of that's really lame, John. Um, and also this burrito was excellent. It was it was truly amazing. I had this like super burrito al pastor. Uh, just oh, very good. Totally worth the being a cheap meal. Um, but. For my money, and I'm sorry, like, I've, you know, if you talk to me, you know I have no love lost. There's no love lost between me and New York City. Like, I left um, and uh, and will never, ever move back again. But for my money, the, the best burrito in the world, you get uh, the Calexico uh, uh, burrito cart on, on Prince Street in, in Soho. Uh, so good. Uh, they have, like, a creamy chipotle sauce they put on things called crack sauce. Ah, oh, so, so, so damn good. If you're ever in New York, please... Please do do yourself a favor and do me a favor and just go to Calexico and bring me back a burrito, a carne asada, please. Um, yeah, if you guys want to like just talk about food in New York, uh, Hill Country Chicken. There's an there's another place, man. Okay, I'm actually feeling kind of hungry again. But uh, hey, thanks for listening to my day two GDC wrap up, especially the end part where it was just me rambling about uh, tacos or or burritos or whatever. I guess you could probably see why I don't do a lot of podcasts by myself um but yeah hey thanks for listening